0: Good evening our first reading comes from Zechariah chapter 8 verses 20 to 23 this is what the Lord Almighty says many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty I myself am going And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take a firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. And our second reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verses one to 10. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us they tell how you turned to god from idols to serve the living and true god and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. this is the word of the lord
1: let's pray father we seek your will not our own We seek change in your power, not our own. We ask for deep conviction in the power of your Holy Spirit. Bring a word to us, Father, today, in no other power than your own. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You're on page 9 for the text, 10 verses, and on page 10 for the outline. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 1, Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you, writes Paul. And my prayer for 6pm is grace and peace to you. Amen? But not just any grace, not just any peace, but the kind of grace that comes from God, the peace that surpasses all understanding, the kind of grace and the kind of peace that produces Thessalonian Christians. And you'll see why that's good in a few moments time or over the next eight weeks. The kind of grace and peace that produces deeper disciples. Our theme here at Churchill for the year is a deeper discipleship in light of our mission to fill the city with the gospel, that's the there that we're looking for, we're here now, but that's the there that we're looking for. Ahead uh, of God, filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory. This is our prayer. And we are here. There is a there, and we've got a long way to go to get there. But God is there ahead of us, guiding us and giving us what we need. And we hope that for the next eight weeks in our new series and the Paul's letter to first letter to the Thessalonians, we hope that this word from God will challenge us and shape us. but comfort us at points, but challenge us at other points. You know, there's a famous quote from uh, 1902. It's actually in a novel and referring to journalists. The the quote that says that journalists are supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. It's a lovely line, isn't it? Comfort the afflicted, because they need the comfort, but afflict the comfortable, because they... Arrogance, pride. I wonder whether the Word of God can be the same to us—to comfort those who need to be comforted, but afflict those who need to be challenged. Lots of great stuff in One Thessalonians. Only five chapters. You could read it in about fifteen. Try half an hour if you want to read it slowly. An hour if you want to meditate on it. And uh, you know, if you work through it regularly over the eight weeks, you might be able to memorize certain portions. In two weeks' time, we'll read these words of the Thessalonian Christians. Paul writes, When you received the word of God, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us from our lips to your ears, you accepted it not as a human word, what we were saying, but as it actually is the word of God to you, which is indeed at work in you who believe. This wasn't our word, we were speaking it, but when you heard it, you you got it, that it was a word from God. We'll hear the same word over the next eight weeks. Bear in mind that it's a letter to other people, so that it's a word not to us, but it is a word for us, through them. So let's see what God has for us. It's a simple letter, But its simplicity must not be mistaken mistaken for for being simplistic. It is profound. And it has some major implications for life and living. The fascinating thing, if you're following the outline on the top of page 10, is that the book that we call One Thessalonians is one of the earliest letters, one of the earliest scripts of the New Testament, and therefore one of the earliest look-sees into Christian community. You could argue that it's an earlier look-see than Acts chapter 2, which is written, written well after this was written. understand? This is possibly one of the first letters that we have. Scholars date it late in the year 50, which is only 20 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 20 years that's 10 years less than my 30 years 20 years to put that in perspective that's 2001 that's 9-11 that's you watching 9-11 now there'll be some here but most of us that's like yesterday it's yesterday fresh in our minds This was written 20 years after the life of Jesus Christ and, indeed, decades before the Gospels were written down and, indeed, Acts was written down, although the oral traditions are, no doubt, well underway, the stories of Jesus Christ. That means that this is an early look into what you might call a reconstructed life, reconstructed according to the kingdom of God. I don't know if you remember my quote a couple of weeks ago from Soren Kierkegaard. It's one of my favourites now. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. They always play it safe, though in words, phrases, and songs, she is inexhaustible inexhaustible about how highly she prizes Christ, and yet he renounces nothing. She will not reconstruct her life, and he will not let his life express what he supposedly admires. Not so. The follower, who will renounce everything, reconstruct their life, and let their life express what they admire or follow. I love that quote, what does it mean to renounce everything? And we don't know what they had to renounce. What we do know in chapter one, verse uh, six, that they suffered, they welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, and in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul will simply say, you suffered. So they're willing to give give stuff up, not just to bend because something they valued uh, was going to be taken away. I want to learn that. Or, the Kierkegaard quote, what does it mean to reconstruct your life? After reading that quote, I'm convinced that that's sort of what it is to be a Christian, you know, uh, sit at the banquet table, of course, to follow Jesus Christ and therefore to reconstruct your life. And we're going to hear today how the Thessalonians turned from idols, which I'm going to argue was hard, not easy. We're going to hear lots of things through the series, and you can see the outline uh, in, in, in the orders of service, but in chapter 4, verse 4, they're going to even learn how to control their bodies sexually. It's going to be that concrete concrete. They're gonna control their bodies in a way that is, quote, holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans, like the world around them. In other words, they're gonna live even sexually differently to to their uni friends, you know, for example. I want the reconstructed life, a life reconstructed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and not reconstructed by my fears or my desires or my negative experience of evangelicalism or church. I want a gospelly reconstructed life, and I want my life to express the one that I follow. So, three questions. Page 10. What was the community like? What was their story, their new and better story, a deeper story? And how were they changed? So firstly, what was the community like? And the answer is hearty and healthy. I don't mean physically healthy, although they could have been, who knows. But I mean hearty. Look at verses 4 and 5. For we know, sisters and brothers, loved by God, that ought to blow your mind, you beloved. He's chosen you, and I know it because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. These people weren't half in, pondering if it might suit their otherwise moral life. They were fully in, convicted and fully in. I love the image of dipping your toe in the water, seeing if it's good for you, and then bringing your toe out if if it isn't the right warmth. I also love the image of um, jumping in. You know, when you jump, off the edge of a pool and into water, the moment you jump, there is no turning back. You will get wet. I think what the Apostle Paul was saying was, if you come to know Jesus Christ, the water is fine. Not not that it's easy. And fully in means full of faith, hope and love the kind of faith, hope, and love that produces something, which is what Paul says in verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, hope. Faith, hope, and love. This is the first configuration of what you'll see later in... 1 Corinthians 13, read at every wedding, half the weddings. But you'll see, faith produced something, work. It prompted something, love prompted something, labour. Hope inspired something, endurance. They were hearty and healthy. And more than that, they were willing to endure ridicule and suffering in this important Roman city. It was an important Roman city, like Sydney's important in Australia, Thessalonica was important in Greece. You can see the map there on page 10, up in the northern part of Greece. Anybody been to to Thessalonica or the ruins or... The one Greek amongst us. Amazing stuff? To touch something so close? Amazing. The city was about as old as modern Sydney is today. They obeyed God rather than simply presented well. And they had a reputation for their faith we'll come back to that in a moment act 17 gives the background of this letter and that is the apostle paul had visited thessalonica sometime before maybe not much time at all maybe a month or so he proclaimed christ there but as a result of his proclamation the very first christian community was founded let me read the words from act 17 listen paul reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer, that the Messiah had to rise from the dead. He opened his Bible to show that. And he said, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said, and therefore not Caesar. So anybody who becomes Christian is gonna to start to undercut the political status quo. And we're told some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. A lovely detail there. But after three weeks in Act 17, Paul was forced to abandon them due to a violent opposition and to head south. And as he leaves them, he does what every pastor does. He starts to get anxious. You know, would they survive? Was my reasoning for nothing? Did we read the Bible and conclude things, and now I don't know how they're going. So he finally sent one of the team back to Thessalonica to find out, and it was good news, despite everything, the fragile, brand-new Christian community is still flourishing and hanging in there, and that's why you get this, I thank God for uh, all of you, verse 2, I continually mention you in our prayers, and that's why he thanks God for their faith, hope, and their love that produces something. So 1 Thessalonians is Paul writing back to them saying, phew, or rather, thank God, in written form. Wouldn't it be great if the congregations of the parish of Churchill didn't just survive, but thrive? Amen? Second question. What was their story? And the answer was: was it was a deep one or a deeper story. They turned from idols, we're told, to God. It might be hard to understand in our culture, in part because the gospel has ditched little idols. But you can go to parts of the world today where you see all sorts of things put out in temples that you can go to. It was like that for these Christians before they became Christians. And Paul gives us their collective testimony, their story. Now, in our circles, you might call them evangelical circles, we believe not just in the static moral life, I am a moral person. We don't just believe in sort of growing ethically, as if Emmanuel Camp were our hero. We don't just believe in doing good in our world, we don't just believe in social justice, as though the fight alone was our kingdom work now as important as ethics and morality are and the pursuit of justice we believe in a miracle we believe in the miracle of new birth the miracle of repentance we believe in the miracle of adults changing their minds that's why we're running the Alpha Course we believe in the miracle that god has to break into your life to convict you of your sin because i'm naturally defensive naturally we believe in the miracle that god has to touch your heart with his saving grace so that you know him and make it your aim to know him better we call it we call it we have a name for it we call it being saved i got saved <laughs> on that camp that my kids went to. I won't, I mean, I've told my story before, I won't, um, well, I mean, it's a miracle, I won't, I won't give you all the details, but uh, there was a person speaking at that camp and he was, as, quite frankly, as boring as I am now. Blah, 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 blah. But as he explained, something about the grace of God, something, I didn't choose it, something opened in my heart, and I sang the hymn, it was a hymn, of course, back in the the good old days, the ute used to sing hymns, and we sang, it was "And Can It Be, and uh, I just wept and wept, and I I came out of my friends who were 17, just said, oh, that was all right, you talked too long, I'm like, did you hear what I heard? Were we listening to the same message? So we value testimony, we do in our tradition, our stories, not of individual truths of self-discovery, but of working out that I was wrong and that God was right. That ev- every man, that God be true and every man a lie, said Paul. <laughs> you know, that we discover that I'm a sinner saved by grace. So we believe in testimonies, and I want to say, if you're part of a community group, maybe you could tell them more often. Leaders here, maybe you could have one testimony a week, and bathe it in thanksgiving. Paul here, in verses 9 and 10, gives the Thessalonians communal testimony. Listen to this. They tell how you, here it is, turned from God. Let me start again. I was just saying if you're awake. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God And to wait for his son, like the king, the Messiah, from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, that could be one of the earliest formulations of the message of the gospel and of testimony. You were regular pagans, like all the people around you. Like everybody else, you're worried about your polite... You wanted your kids to be safe you dreamed of a better life hoping that your local god because that's what paganism is had this beautiful friend of mine in miller's point come into the garrison church and we held a a concert there it wasn't christian in any particular way and she looked at me she walked in and she said um she said to me uh what's going to happen when a pagan walks in here and i said you're a pagan she said yeah i said i thought you're an atheist she says yeah I said, I'm sorry, ma'am, a pagan is deeply religious. She didn't know the definition. A pagan thinks about the gods all the time, because out of fear, right? And they turn up, they hope that their local god would deliver, turning up to a thing, a temple or an idol, every now and then and hoping for the best. It really was superstition. But not the kind that's growing now, you'll hear it in a, you hear it on our own news networks. And by the way, you're going to hear it every time. I, now that I've said this, you're going to hear it all the time. You'll hear things like, oh, fingers crossed the weather will be good. Touch wood, you'll hear them say. Intelligent Australians, you'll see on Facebook, sending you good vibes. Now, all of that's innocuous, I know. But I reckon the children and the grandchildren of the people who are giving up on one true God and a walking forward into fingers crossed and touch wood. I think we'll be a return to paganism in the next 50 to 100 years. But back then, the turning from idols was a huge pressure. This is your heritage. This is what we do. This is your family. This is your family's future. You could jeopardize it all by turning away from this idol. The Apostle Paul had come along and said, with reason. God doesn't live in things. He never did. He's the true and living God, not the false and dead one. You know, an idol is dead, right? It's not made of anything biological. I mean, wood that's dying, gold or something. He told them that God loves them, that he's above it all, not local, but universal, and at the same time, he's imminent. He sees inside his hearts. He'll judge all people everywhere by their actions coming from their heart, which he sees. Paul then also proclaimed that Christ died and Christ had risen for sins. That's what the rescued me from the coming wrath. This is good news. There's a coming wrath because God's a just God and I've been rescued from it, despite the fact that I'm a sinner. So Paul said, you could be right with the true and living God, through Jesus Christ. Now, they heard the gospel and responded. They turned to God from the idols. Paul writes, to serve the true and living God. So instead of a local God, they now had a universal one. Instead of a God that they made, they believed in a God who made them. Literally, they made the God. Instead of a God whose job it was to deliver on my desires and remove my fears, it's now a God they served Instead of a little God, a big God. Instead of a cat in my lap, which serves me, they believed in God as a lion to fear and to love. Idols are not something we see much in our Western culture, except that we worship things all the time. But idols are a funny thing. They are psychologically brilliant Idols, psychologically, brilliant. Because you have fears and you have dreams and they're often connected. They're your fears and your dreams and you don't want to let them go. You don't even want to let the fears go in many ways because they are connected to the realization of your dreams. But you want to remain spiritual and moral and in control. And so you make up your God. Literally, you make your God. And you bow before it, and you say, "Now I've got something external to me that might help me." So then, idols are an extension of my will. Right? Something in my heart, I have then created something outside of me, and then I can frame it up as my pretension as God's will. Not for me. Look, I can point, point that external to me. And so I can keep my life intact. Remain and remain spiritual at the same time, and keep going on with my life. Paul says that despite great cost to themselves, they gave up this mental trickery and received the gospel that there was a God that He's acted in Jesus Christ, and they're going to wait for Him. Verses nine and ten. That's their story. What's our story? We'll come to that in a moment. Like how they changed. Thirdly, and finally. And the answer is by the gospel, by the message. And not a dry message that changes nothing, but an alive message from the true and living God and into individuals functioning in community. It's gospel conviction and gospel love in community. I love what Tom Wright says since love is the primary virtue from God, love predate, predates the existence of matter. Since love is the primary virtue, community is the primary context. Paul Tripp writes, a community of love is meant to comfort the person who's discouraged. We can pray for you tonight. To strengthen the person who's weak, I know what that feels like. To encourage the person who has no hope, we'd love to talk to you to come alongside the person who's alone, to guide the person who's lost his way, we need more of that, to give wisdom to the person lost in foolishness, to warn the person who's beginning to wander, to correct the person turning the wrong way, to give eyes to the person blind to God's presence, And to physically represent God's presence and his love, no one is wired to live outside community. Here's a reconstructed life. They had the gospel with deep conviction in verses four and five. The gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction, the message itself. It wasn't just blah, 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 words upon words upon words, or you might say a wall of sound. But rather, those words made sense. You know, God was behind it. They were deeply convicted, and Jesus said that would happen in John chapter 16. The Christian life is not just listening, but listening with power. Do I have that deep conviction? Good question. Secondly, and this list here, by the way, we're going to explore through the whole letter, the gospel came with models. Look at verse 5b. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. We did the same. Jesus did the same. And so because you had models, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea, neighboring towns. We were with you, we shared the gospel, and our lives, you saw how to follow Jesus in our lives, and you then became a model for others. So the Christian life is not just discussing ideas, but modelling, finding out who to model, and how us, we ourselves can become models. Am I a model for others of, of faith, hope, and love? The gospel came with missional, a missional reputation. Verse 8, the Lord's message rang out, from you, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, there's models there, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. It was like saying, look at those people, look at what they believe, look at how it's changed their lives. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. There's something very public about genuine faith. It can't remain locked up. It must be compelling. That first reading, by the way, That there'll be a time, there'll be a time when 10 people from other nations will grab hold of the coat of a Jew and say, I'm not letting go because God clearly is with you. That clearly refers to Jesus Christ, but through Jesus Christ, wouldn't it be great if our faith was public? And indeed, we had a reputation of not bowing to the spirit of the age, but the transformation being seen. And lastly and finally, the gospel came with transforming waiting. You turned to God from the idols and you wait for his son from from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us, good news, from the coming wrath. When I hear the word waiting, I think of services in New South Wales, now serving n one at window 13. Is that what waiting is? Like waiting for a bus? Or waiting in traffic? No, the waiting in the New Testament is energetic waiting. The kind that has work produced by faith, labour prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The waiting is not passive. May these four things be true of us as we consider the contents of this letter. Soren Kierkegaard, though in words, phrases, and songs, the admirer is inexhaustible about how hard he prizes Christ, and yet he renounces nothing, will not reconstruct his life, and will not let his life express what he supposedly admires. Not so the follower. Let's see what this series looks like for us. Let's pray, Father. We are catching a glimpse here here into an ancient world of Paul not being sure that his words and work were stuck; whether they were, whether it was going to be all in vain. And yet he receives a word from Timothy and is, allowed to, and is able to write back and say how good it is. Uh, their faith and their hope and their love, prompting work and labour and endurance. Father, it was written to a people long ago, but may, as we read this letter, may this be a word for us, a word from you for us. May there be a sense of expectation about what we might learn from you, about what sort of convictions might come from above, what sort of prayers we might offer to each other, what sort of challenges we might give in our community groups and other places. May there be for us a genuine possibility for a deeper discipleship, a better story, a a more compelling community. We want this, Father, for Christ's sake. Amen.